Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, and welcome back. The Institute is currently in deep preparation for the fifth annual Transgender Justice Teaching, which is a space dedicated to the knowledge, liberation, and experiences of trans, non-binary, and intersex communities. On Tuesday, November 16th at 4.30 p.m. Central, 5.30 p.m. Eastern via Zoom, we are hosting a conversation called The Next Generation, Building Liberated Futures with Queer and Trans Youth. Due to the latest surge in anti-trans legislation targeting trans and non-binary youth, it feels more important than ever to center, listen to, and defer to TGQ young people. So we're excited to be joined by four TGQ organizers, educators, and change makers who will share what they're witnessing in their own communities, discuss how their experiences inform the direction of their projects, and provide ideas on how to be aligned with the needs of trans, non-binary, and intersex youth. You can learn more about the upcoming teach-in at sgdinstitute.org forward slash programs forward slash transgender dash justice. So as a nod to the transgender justice teach-in conversations we've had before, we are bringing forth the audio from last year's teach-in as the episode for this week. That conversation was the rise of a trans abolitionist vision, and my oh my, was it a kick-ass conversation with four folks doing abolition, police accountability, and anti-police and prison work um, in conversation in November of 2020, just six months after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which was very pressing and prevalent for the folks in conversation conversation in this space, because three of which were located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, participating in this conversation. Now, since last year's teach-in, uh, quite a few things have happened on a grand scale and on a localized scale. We had an election, which brought us the shift of power to Joe Biden. We had an insurrection, to kick off the year 2021 back in January, where uh, the Capitol was bombarded with um, some very distinguished guests uh, who made a big point of their disdain with the shift of power um, and brought on a lot of commentary about the role of policing when it comes to certain populations of people protesting um, versus others. Back in April, and March uh, of 2021, we saw the opening and closing of the trial against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who was convicted for the murder of George Floyd. But that trial, right, was much more important in its impact than the verdict against this killer cop. Um, the Institute was fully attentive to the trial, but we were even more so attentive to the resistance efforts taking place and inspired by impacted communities in Minnesota, specifically um, Minneapolis and later on Brooklyn Center. Um, we've long understood that taking this killer cop to court or any killer cop to court when in the rare instances it happens would not offer true justice. Um, and that the verdict still means that systems of policing and imprisonment will be generally unscrutinized by the courts, police departments, or government agencies. 
the rhetoric upheld by both the defense and the prosecution is that police are necessary and a noble profession. The arguments made not about the were not made um, about the inherent violence of policing, but whether this individual officer was within or beyond what is deemed acceptable use of force per policing protocol. In fact, in the closing remarks, the state said, quote, this is not an anti-police prosecution. It is a pro-police prosecution. Our criminal legal system has displayed its inner workings, its mess, its inefficiency on a national scale throughout the trial proceedings. From the obscure jury selection tactics to the stigmatization of people who use drugs, all the way to the final verdict, millions have watched and questioned the effectiveness of this process. We couldn't even get through the trial without witnessing additional murders at the hands of police. Since the trial began, 64 people had been killed by police officers, including Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, impacting an already grieving community. And so once again, we saw a community already grieving mobilize and move and push on these systems that have not served them and shown the nation and the globe what it means to push back on systems that do not serve, do not protect. Those efforts have accumulated in a variety of policy measures, or at least attempted policy measures, at the federal and local levels. We've seen some lip service style policy being moved forward at the federal level with the George Floyd bill, um, which ultimately puts some power back into policing and is not quite aligned with abolitionist practice, but at least um, projected the conversation around police accountability and police reform on the national scale beyond just um, Minneapolis and surrounding communities. And then in the recent election circuit in Minneapolis, there was significant campaigning by grassroots efforts and the people um, for a particular ballot measure uh, called Question 2, um, which folks were asked to vote yes on. And so City Question 2 would have created a Department of Public Safety that stood separate from the existing police department and would have expanded conceptions of public safety and allowed um, for more creative and considerate solutions for what does it mean to offer the city of Minneapolis um, public safety. Unfortunately, that city ballot measure did not get voted into existence. However, 45% of eligible voters did vote in favor of that measure. So although it did not ultimately pass, that 45% number is really fucking significant because it says pretty loudly and pretty clearly that the folks who are civically engaged and the folks who are participating in campaign efforts towards public safety and who've been paying a modicum of attention to what is going on in their city have had enough and they want something different. Maybe they're not fully abolitionist focused. Maybe they do want some semblance of a police department, but they also want something else because it is very evident that what is in place in this moment is not working. And so while it may not be a full win to the effect that question two was put into place, the folks in Minneapolis have now gotten affirmation from voters that they continue to want something more, they continue to want something that offers true safety and protection, and that does not include Minneapolis police. I honestly just get hype thinking about it, that we are on the precipice of significant transformation and being an abolitionist and uttering the words, fuck the police, were really like contentious 
in a real way, you know, just a few years ago, and that the shifts um, as this movement work has continued to permeate other movement work um, and other social issues has really made it more commonplace for folks to understand that even if they can't currently see what exactly the solutions are, they're ready to explore, they're ready to be creative, and they can concede that what we have in place at this moment has got to go. So um, I'm happy to be resurfacing this conversation with the folks from last year's Transgender Justice Teach-In um, because the sentiment of our conversation, uh, while named the rise of a trans abolitionist vision, um, is that there's an abolitionist future because we're in an abolitionist present. Um, and all of the labor, all of the work, all of the campaigning, all of the conversations, all of the changes, shifts, policies, you know, all of this work um, that we've seen manifest in just the past year has been built off of work from decades and decades of abolitionist work when it wasn't as cool and common um, to be aligned with abolitionist thinking. Um, so I encourage folks to listen deeply and fully to this conversation and then listen to it again and then listen to it one more time because this conversation was a testament to how putting concepts and ideas into practice plants seeds that will flourish into nourishment in our liberated future. Please enjoy this episode of Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but <laughs> we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, everyone. Um, hey, hi, hello. My name is RB. I use they, them pronouns. Um, and I serve as both program coordinator for sexuality and gender equity initiatives at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Um, and as director of programs for the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. And I am so, 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 so hyped to be um, welcoming you and uh, uh, facilitating um, this very necessary conversation, the rise of a trans abolitionist vision um, as part of the fourth annual Transgender Justice Teach-In. Um, I'm going to do a big bite introduction so that we can just get right into it, right? Um, so, of course, I want uh, for, for folks who are watching, uh, you know, average introduction of who you are, name, pronouns, any roles or involvement that you want to speak to for this space. And then I also want to invoke just right out the gate um, some language and the idea from the co-founder of Critical Resistance, Rachel Herzing, who is often cited as um, encouraging that we have to make this work, right? Specifically talking about abolition work, um, police accountability work, um, uh, work against systems of policing and imprisonment, right? Rachel Herzing talks about making that work irresistible to other people. Right. And so in thinking about the idea of making the work irresistible in your introduction, um, if you could share a bit about what 
allured you, you know, called you, enticed you, maybe even forced you into the work you're doing right now. Um, so quick introduction plus why are you doing what you're doing? And whoever would like to start is welcome to do so. I'll jump in. Hi, everyone. My name is Key, like a key in the door, but I don't spell it that way because I'm fancy. Um, my pronouns are they, them. And I am a PhD candidate in education, curriculum, and instruction at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Um, I'm also a transformative justice practitioner, um, organizer, and healer. Um, this is a really funny question for me because um, when I started doing this work, it was like, because all the cool kids were doing it, right? We're like, I really got brought into the work. Um, and so folks that I was in community with were like, hey, we actually have this organizing collective where we are doing some of this like transformative justice work. And I didn't know what transformative justice was. Um, and I also didn't know why they wanted to talk to me. <laughs> But um, they brought me in and they were like, this is the work that we're doing. And do you want to think with us and be with us? And um, that was like my first introduction to the work. And then I went to graduate school so that I could actually study um, because I was living a life where I was like hustling and trying to pay my bills and survive as a Black trans person. Um, and I didn't actually have the time to study. And so I decided to go to grad school to do that. Um, so that's what brought me into that work. It was definitely relationship and um, I was gently and graciously um, brought into the work. I, I, I think I really just tripped into the work. Um, honestly, um, I am a unintentional abolitionist. Um, I, I, I've, I'm, my name is Dominique Morgan. My pronouns, goodness. We did a y'all. We did an introduction before y'all got on here, and and it seems like we've been child. It's been a day anyway. Um, and I got some chips on the floor that I just I just want to turn off this camera and eat so damn bad. So I just I just need y'all just to hold space for us sister on today. Um, but uh, Dominique Morgan, she her hers. I am the executive director of Black and Pink. And I'm born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, so in Black and Pink, we talk about folks being system impacted, and then we talk about direct incarceration, right? Um, and not to 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 make anyone larger than the other, but it was important. It's important for us to talk about being system impacted because it positions me to do the work in a way that supports folks before these systems of oppression coalesce to, to incarcerate people and also um, uh, positions me to be able to look at the effects of incarceration in how I serve people. So um, incarcerated folks, children and families and the church, the, the neighborhood gas station that they were spending $5 in every day that now is missing that. It allows me to expand um, as a good Christian say our territory. Um, and so I came from a sexual health background. I'm also a kid that grew up in the juvenile system from the age of 13 to 17 and um, a year of homelessness and like survival sex work. And then um, at 18 went into the adult system in Nebraska and was was incarcerated from the age of 18 to 27. And, and so I am from a reform state, a reform community. Um, 
and I'm not saying I wouldn't go back and, and go to school and get my degrees and do all those things. Um, but at a time, I thought that was just what I had to do um, and came up through sex, you know, sexual health and was an adolescent health educator and teaching in high schools and doing some adjunct work. Um, and I turned down this job um, at Black and Pink. Um, and the reason I'm talking about my job as in the abolitionist piece is that that's how I found abolition, honestly. Um, I turned this job down and I said, well, I'll join the board of directors. Um, and and, and y'all, if you join a board, read the bylaws below it. Um, because it said, if there's not an executive director, the president of the board becomes the interim executive director. So four months after I thought I ran away from a job, um, it was mine. And then I had, and we were doing the work from Omaha and I said, well, we're a national agency. There is so much harm. There is so much um, pain that happens from these systems in the Midwest and people ignore us because we're the Midwest. What if I move the national office to Omaha and really challenge people to look to the center of the country? Um, and so uh, January 22nd will be three years. Um, it took me about a year and a half to completely divest from systems. And, and, and most of my barriers were around harm that I had received from individuals and still having this false hope that these systems would find me, um, would find me healing, would find me justice. And at the time I hadn't even defined what justice was to me. Um, and so, so, so this role at Black and Pink um, definitely was about me being Black and queer and trans and getting a coin, but um, okay. Um, but also changed my life and, and has allowed me to really focus on community and, and, and I think the benefit of abolition that we don't talk about enough is that we take the power away from systems to say that they have control over what our world can look like, that they are not the be all end all, they're not the crux of us having our idealized um, societies. And for someone who's been um, navigating extreme oppression for most of their lives, abolition um, feels like a breath of fresh air. So that's how I ended up here. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Justin Tolliver. My pronouns are they, them, and theirs. Um, I wear a lot of hats in these different ways, so titles feel really weird for me, but um, I'm an educator at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Um, and I also just do community work. I believe in the power that is in community. I think history tells us that it is how we have and, and will continue to survive, is how we take care of each other. When, when I think about what attracted me to abolition was very similar to what Dominique and, and Key shared is like, I, I guess it, it's actually a culmination of experiences that, that are in my li lived experience, right? Of like seeing my family like arrested and incarcerated and like stopped um, and being in a traffic stop when that happened by very violent police, right? It also was like coming into my queerness and to my transness and understanding that like, um, I'm just really thankful for, for people and for mentorship and for relationship as folks have talked about as well is like, I, I had a, a one moment that I always go back to, especially when I link my queerness to my abolition work, I feel like, and my blackness, like they, those three things can't necessarily be un untwined for me. Untwined, is that a word? Anyway, so I was at, it is today. So I, um, some years ago, I was at a, at a Creating Change. If folks know what that is, it's a big queer conference. And um, I was in this day-long institute um, about Blackness. And um, make a long story short, is that in the middle of it, 
a group of black trans women shut down the panel and for a lot of reasons right and 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 that moment for me was life-changing I got to sit back and listen to my siblings and to folks talk about and, and really like really weave the importance of when we talk about abolition that we have to be talking about black trans women and trans people period and they can't be separated and it was so liberating for me as I was explore I was a young little baby queer at that point so I'm like exploring what does that look like for me and where do I fit into this and so I feel like for a while I was searching beyond um what I had access to, if that makes sense. I, I felt like I was in these little rural towns for school because I kind of followed that traditional school path. Somehow they gave me access to it. And um, and I so I was like looking for a deep community to be able to like do this. And then, um, so I've always been kind of doing that work, whether it's through like social media or trying to organize things in these small rural towns or like on college campuses. And then I moved to Minneapolis and I was like, I found other Black, queer, and trans people who were passionate about this work and who were committed to doing it while also taking care of one another. And so I feel like that's how I got into the work and I'm still figuring out what it looks like and, and how do I take care of myself in it and what's too much and what's not enough and, you know, and, and really figuring it out for, out for myself as well. Um, the last thing I'll say is that a lot of the big piece for me as folks have kind of already talked about is like this piece of imagination is so important to me about abolition. This idea that we have to imagine realities that do not exist, that folks have never made a blueprint for, that have never written a recipe for. And so um, I think that's what we're doing right now. And, um, and that's it, thanks. Hey y'all, um, I'm Artisha. My pronouns are she and they. Um, I am um, the membership organizer at Black Visions. Um, and for me, like my, I really resonate with what you were saying, Justin, cause I remember when I was like five years old, my parents got stopped. Um, we're like driving home really late at night and got stopped by the police. And I never like knew why, I think it was because they were speeding or something, but I just remember being really, really scared, but it also being my first interaction with the police um, and being really scared for my dad who is a black immigrant. Um, and yeah, like, like they never talked to me about it, but it was always something that like a very big childhood memory for me and something that I carried on like, a bodily reaction like I actually didn't know the dangers of the police or like what could have happened but in my body feeling very unsafe and um when I was in high school was when um Jamar Clark was murdered like my last year of high school and just having this scenario like basically yeah in my chest in my heart in my center and um being in this occupation and as I like, as I got more acquainted with the people in the space and understanding what, I mean, what people with the organizers of the space were calling for and what other people wanted. And I think like what I, well, when police murder somebody, people often like, are like, you know, lock them up, put them away. They never can see the light of day. And, but while simultaneously being like, but free these other people, um, and just having to come ask myself hard questions, I think about like what um, what freedom meant to me, what being a, a human meant to me in humanity, and um, how is this much bigger than uh, the one 
how is this much bigger than one group of people, but the whole ecosystem of our communities and how prisons and police and these things that uphold uphold and keep safe like capitalism and also reinforce racism and all these other things but how ultimately the answer is to not have those so i think for me abolition was an internal thing and also i will say like alongside of that a lot of the people in my life like indirectly pushing me towards that and really sharing values and beliefs with me that i didn't understand were abolitionist values and beliefs but um being able to really have an experience first and then do some studying and i would say like this year has really been my year of trying to figure out what it means to me and how i actually practice it um and also like having a situation a very terrible situation where i was like mm, who do i call because I don't, I now understand that I can't call the police and I also don't know who else to call, but not to be all over the place, but that's that's kind of my um, orientation to abolition. So again, just so much deep appreciation for having y'all together in this space. I think, I think some obvious patterns out of y'all's response to even what what brought you to where you are in this moment, right, is, is a few things. One, you know, is the proximity to these systems or the, the, the uh, coerced involvement in these systems even where, where I, think, um, I think the folks who cannot or will not concede to an abolitionist vision, right, they have the, the coziness of not really having proximity to some of these systems or witnessing it firsthand, whether it's, you know, being pulled over or being incarcerated or, or witnessing, you know, witnessing uh, some of the blatant violence um, and thinking that, that that's all just okay. Um, I also, I think a pattern that was named too is, is um, just like how there's not obvious places to learn or to to wrap our heads around an abolitionist future um and how that how that kind of ref, uh um how we can't really play with our imaginations that's its own form of control i think right is that like we're deterred from even being able to be playful or imaginative or creative in that way and i think that's its own form of of control um and that too um i think like that creativity right is also why trans non-binary intersection gender non-conforming folks specifically queer folks you know generally um experience so much uh restriction because of that imagination just being squandered and squashed right we can't think we can't even fathom things that we're not seeing um or not being allowed to consider um and i think all of that is just so um so interrelated and makes for just kind of this messy complicated you know we were taught to color inside the lines and and really I, there's a whole different coloring book completely that we're not even allowed to to pull off the shelf because it might be too dangerous for you know these systems right that that we're talking about to to be able to strip that power and some of that magic away and do something different um so i, I to pivot right i want to invoke um that and i want to invoke um direct words from another kind of pretty significant you know name in the the long-standing legacy of abolition work and 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 police accountability work and pushing against these systems we're talking about and so this summer 
um, during a Dream Defenders Sunday School uh, session. They'd had quite a few awesome folks on, but um, Dr. Angela Y. Davis was one of them. Um, and in this space, um, I pulled this particular quote because it's been and it's been kind of ringing in my mind um, for for a few months now, um, and I'll read it off. Um, is quote if we want an intersectional perspective, the trans community is showing us the way. The trans community has taught us to challenge that which is perceived to be normal. If we want, if we can challenge the gender binary we can challenge prisons. And I think until that moment, right, like my concept of challenging gender and, and, and cishet normativity and all that like gender ick kind of lived right here. And then all this abolition stuff kind of lived right here. And I knew that there were these dotted lines connecting all of that and that those were those were in relationship. But I think that language, like that quote specifically was like, oh, those are, like we can't go, we can't go any forward, any further with this abolition work without also having it in momentum with, you know, challenging and being in a direct conversation with how we think about gender, how we, you know, think about the gender binary. Um, and so I, I'm curious for y'all, right? Like, you know, maybe reactions to that quote specifically, or um, to ask a, a, an additional question, right? Or what? because some of y'all started to name this even, what are ways that coming into queerness and transness um, or doing queer and trans work um, has lends itself to a belief in abolition? Mm. Well, like a lot of my like organizing work, um, I started off like, running pride here in Nebraska. I created youth pride here in Nebraska. So that was like my hands on like training. And I remember coming out of prison in 2009, really believing that queer spaces would inherently be safe for me. And then realizing how white queer spaces were, let me know they would never be safe for me. And so the correlation I have to like the spaces around queerness and abolition is that there are so many spaces where white people, white queer folks are trying to dictate what abolitionist lives are and what they aren't. Um, and it's, it's historically the least impacted folks who are trying to establish what the litmus test is for, for being abolitionist. I, I, I say all the time, I have a stack of books. Um, it was, I started, I started in January and um, Prime Day came like that summer, mind you. Now, I was I was a girl that had to change an email every 30 days to keep a prime membership. And it was the first time where I had the coin to buy me toilet paper in bulk to see what this little echo dot was sitting on. Right. Not not that I'm not recognizing all the harm this company does. I'm saying that I've never had access to this. And I remember making a post in all of these white abolitionists in my inbox. Oh, my God, you need to divest. This is a list of places you can go. You shouldn't shop here. Sending me books because essentially I'm not smart enough, I haven't read enough to get their perspective of it. And it felt very much around how white folks police queerness in, 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 in so many levels. And so I do believe that the capability is there, right? So many folks are, are opening their minds to the, the, the multitude of genders and all of these other things. 
I think that you have to engage in that sort of transformative visioning while undoing your white supremacy. And they act like they can only do one thing at one time. And that's the rub is that I love sitting down talking to folks about like, yo, like, who do we want to be? How do we want to show up? What do we want to do? But you want me to be in a spirit of, 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 of openness, of dreaming, calling on what, what the ancestors are giving me. I'm a Pisces, honey. I dream stuff. I see stuff. I, I taste colors. Okay. Um, you want me to bring that sort of vulnerability to a space that's full of people who are trying to, in, in, in very um, casual ways, attack me, attack, uh, attack who I am um, in, in hopes that my validity will come the more that how I show up resembles the way that they show up. So, so in closing, I'll say that it's very much possible, but white folks are going to, white folks who, who are centered most in queer spaces, who, who, are, who lead the queer organizations who are paid in EDs, the folks who have the budgets to do this type of transformative work, they have to not only envision a community without prisons and jails and these societies, they have to recognize they've benefited from all of those and they have to divest and be prepared to experience a different sort of life in this country. And I'm not sure they are. Can I just say, I'm like, mm, 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 behind my like muted mic. That was a whole word. Um, Thank you for naming that, because I, I do think that there is something particular to Blackness and transness that creates an experience um, that, you know, like white trans folks can't quite touch and Black cishet folks can't quite touch. And I think that is something really special. Um, and I think, you know, knowing Angela Davis, she probably meant to say Black trans people, um, you know, but whatever the context is, but um, Fred Moten said this thing about, uh, who's like a black poet, amazing thinker, said like abolition isn't just like abolishing prisons, but abolishing the society in which prisons are needed or like, or things exist, right? And I think that that really resonates with me. It's not just about like people think about the like just doing away with, right? But not about like, yeah, because we're also like, I'm not just trying to say no prisons, I'm trying to say like, get rid of the need to have prison in the first place. And that feels so big. And I feel like I have had access to that dreaming, dreaming because of my blackness, because being a black person means that you have to be able to figure out how to like, live in this like antagonist relationship with the world. And that, um, and that like, as a black person, particularly as a black trans person, I think there's there's a level of nuance that comes with like basically making decisions out of like shitty options, right? It's like when you are only given so many options and you're like, both of these are bad options, but we have to figure out what to do. I mean, we could use the election as an example, right? Like both of these people are bad options. Obviously we don't want a fascist you know, but like so many, and black people were the ones to say, Joe Biden doesn't necessarily represent us, but also like, we gotta do what we gotta do to survive. And showed up, even though that wasn't, that wasn't a candidate that was necessarily in our best interest. And I feel like that's an experience about blackness that happens all the time. 
is people making, you know, rubbing two pennies together and making a dime, you know, like really trying to figure out how to make something out of nothing. And I think um, that continuing with these kind of um, like the freedom to be, I think with my transness, it, it, it's very much like the freedom to like be in a way that like these boxes around gender are also white supremacist colonial categories, right? And so it's not just about, oh, like these ideas of masculinity are also like, that's what we were told we had to participate to be able to be acceptable in a settler society. So I, I think so much for me, it's not just like eradicating the thing in front of us, but like changing the conditions that allowed this to happen in the first place. And I think that, um, and I think black trans people are unique, uniquely positioned to lead that because we have to literally do that every day to survive, to get our needs met. Um, and so, yeah, for me, those feel really connected. Um, and I think that, yeah, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> I feel honored to just be in the, in the conversation in the presence of brilliant Black people, Black queer and trans people. Um, thank you for that. I've been also getting my entire life, which I'm sure people have seen from my square. Um, the only thing that I'll add that I feel like <clears throat> I just want to like amplify from what's already been said is like, you know, being Black, being queer and being trans, that, that like holy trinity of experience is the blueprint. And, and our culture is so non-monolithic, even though we've been set up to look that way, right? And to have this one singular experience. And I think, even for me, when I think back to childhood as a young Black queer and trans, whether I knew the queer and trans piece back then, is that it actually, my imagination was how I survived. My imagination is actually the first thing that I had to express my femme being but I had to do it in imagination. I actually had to envision what my life could look like authentically, right? So it was actually me in my parents' house with the door closed with a sickening t-shirt on my head and getting my full life to the Sister Act 2 uh, closing scene, right? But that was me imagining that like I could be that fierce and that femme and that unapologetically authentic at that age. And I think there's, as folks have already talked about, there are these moments where that is our reality every day as Black and queer and Black, queer, and trans people is that we have to, there is no other option, right? I looked at my mom, the strongest Black woman that I, that like, and, and so many of our Black women, right? Where like, I saw what it took to to, to be able to make it, right? And, and I, I've even been thinking about faith and, you know, I grew up in a very religious faith household, right? And I've been thinking about Christianity and it's, violence and how it plays into a lot of things that we're talking about but how really for my black mom that like faith and that connection it's, it's all about hope right and in moments where you don't know how the bill's about to get paid or how we're about to make it out of this traffic stop or whatever it is right is that it is this idea that i have to be able to imagine me and my people being well for it to happen and, and, to, and to be gritty and resilient in that journey um, when you actively know that it's not for you, that it's actually actively working to kill you. And so I think there is such a gift and I had to learn it and, and still learning it, right? That like to view it as this 
magnificent power that actually will allow us to get free and by and by product everyone else free right and and actually free and actually safe um in that and so i do i think that that black queer and trans people specifically black trans people black trans women will um need to be the lead and, and be resourced and and get all like in our bags right to be able to do this work because we are constantly imagining and it's exhausting and it is um not perfect i think the last thing i want to say too is that like when i it's really important to me that i'm able to talk to my grandma about gender about abolition about whatever it is, because if I can't, one, it's only for the elites, right? It's only for folks who are able to get to college, who can talk the language, all of that stuff. <clears throat> but what I love about human beings and why I think that abolition is like accessible to folks is that some someone might not be able to tell you how they've experienced violence through gender or through capitalism or whatever it is, but they can tell you what it feels like. And that matters when we are talking about abolition and an imagining vision, like uh, visions of our realities where, where we are granted autonomy and um, safety in our lives. Um, yeah, I, I just think that it is, it's our reality and it's what we have to do. And people, white folks specifically will have always chosen not to see that, like that power or like that, um, the imagination that it takes to live every day and to be able to to just survive on a day to day basis. So I'll stop there. But thank you. Wow. Yeah, I really um, resonate with everything that has been said and feel like the one part I'm going to take from what I had to say is just that I think I don't understand, like, I don't know Angela Davis, Ms. Angela Davis's intentions with her statement, but at the same time, it made me think about um, just how it's romanticized or like how it's kind of like this, at least the way it's phrased is almost like a dreamy idea. Like if we can look at this like this, we can just easily look at that like that. But in reality, like in practice, in, in embodiment and actually believing it, it is different. And just like, um, yeah, wanting just the danger of um, acting as if there's not complexities to being non-binary, to being trans, to being in the LGBT community. And it's not as simple. Um, yeah, I don't know. Something about that juxtaposition just doesn't sit right with me where I'm like, I guess you can say that, but at the same time, um, the people who actually need to hear that or who need to understand that need more depth to that. Um, and just feeling really making me think about in my work and with my organization, like people wanting to work with us or feeling slighted by the community that we have created and the centering of queer and trans people that we are grounded in and refuse to let up on, but kind of, yeah, feeling, I guess I will say some animosity or resentment and wanting us to really be able to be vulnerable, kind of like what you were saying, Dominique, like you want me to be open, but also you're but you're gonna attack me when you get the chance like or when you feel some type of way especially if abolition may not be your thing yet when you feel some type of way it's really gonna come out how you actually um feel about trans people and queer people and yeah i could really go in about that for a while but yeah that's my thing on it um i understand the metaphor i understand her intentions and also understand that she has a different perception of the world than like the people that we are trying to move well 
has a different experiences than the people that we are trying to move towards abolition um, and towards understanding that, sorry, my, I broke my phone before this y'all and it keep flashing green and it won't work, but yeah. Well child, the devil is busy. It, for real, I, a lot happened before I got up on here. <laughs> we have a few folks' uh, pay apps already. Artisha, we need yours. We'll get that, we'll get that phone situation fixed. We need to drop yours too. <laughs> um, I just, uh, this is giving me just such a, such a mood boost. I think just this, this is so like such a, this is so good. This is so good. What I, what I'm hearing, right, just to, to name and frame as we keep going, right, is just, I have this like, because my brain works in metaphors, I'm thinking about what you're naming as far as all of, like, these can't be, these experiences and folks' like lived experiences cannot be compartmentalized. Um, and that we can't really, I like, I talk a lot about in some organizing groups I'm in this like department store effect where folks kind of want to align themselves you know you can get your your racial justice alignment over here and then trans and queer alignment is maybe somewhere else but they don't really like it's not all living in the same shopping cart like they're not necessarily considering all of those and the complexity of of them at once um I think about that and then I think about so many things I think about like in working towards pulling down and, and eradicating some of these systems, I'm thinking about like a, a pantry shelf and you can't really take like one jar down without, and then like focus on that without like just the whole shelf really just needs to be pulled down. And then we can make a whole new like multifunctional, like trans black affirming pantry shelf situation that's much more functional and accessible. and that's the mental image I have and just like the necessity of, I, I'm thinking about, I just recently um, read slash audio booked um, prisons by any other name and something that was a repetition in that, that text was the raw materials of what we're talking about. It's not just literal jails and prisons. It's not just literal police departments, but that so much of the raw materials of what formed those facilities, right, detention centers also, heterosexism, patriarchy, white supremacy, those are the raw materials and that that is, is everywhere and, and that exists in things like electronic monitoring and child protective services and all these other kind of existing things that we don't think about because they're again not, maybe we're not in proximity to them or they're not as evident because they're a, a kind of diluted but very clear case of some of those raw materials of again patriarchy white supremacy heterosexism and probably many more but um i also appreciate and and made a note uh from justin's comment right about being able to talk to just about anyone about an abolitionist vision and and to re maybe even edit Rachel Herzing's ask of making abolition irresistible, but also having to make it accessible as far as how do we talk about it. Um, and I think that that carries us well into another um, question I have is, we've alluded a bit to doing the work in the Midwest specifically, and I think this next question will take us a bit more explicitly um, into that. But thinking about queer and trans folks in the Midwest broadly, um, especially in, you know, maybe more rural areas. We just came out of an election, maybe more red areas. 
um, where being in relationship or community with other queer and trans folks, period, um, can be especially hard or, or more complicated. Um, how do you navigate being in community or kinship with folks who maybe don't use abolitionist language outright or are not invested or ready to invest in an abolitionist vision? Um, you know, how do you coexist with those folks, um, either in your immediate ecosystem or, or in general? Does that, does that make sense, right? Like, how do we, how do we, <laughs> they're, they're on a spectrum, I'm sure, but like, how do we, how do we coexist with those folks? How do y'all coexist with those folks? I mean, I feel like it's essential not to just coexist, but to engage with those folks. Um, because folk, if, if people who, didn't have, you know, Jason Lydon is Black and Pink's founder, um, is based in Chicago now. Um, love Jason Down. And um, I think I was, that's the, the creating change where that protest happened. That's the, that's the day I met Jason and found out about Black and Pink the first time. And so I remembered that protest thinking like, why don't they just calm down? Why are they causing this disruption, right? Like all these ways that white supremacy and anti-blackness lives in us and, 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 and kind of teaches us to like behaving well is gonna make us more desirable or they'll finally respect us. And I, and it took being surrounded by folks that consistently not, does not challenge my values in trying to make me feel like I wasn't evolved enough, but they just lived around me. I watched them. I watched Jason literally have things stolen from thousands of dollars stolen and go through an accountability practice. I watched him hold himself to that standard and it hit me that, you know, what is the point of living if we're not going to live with our whole self? And, 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 and leaning into these systems um, are, it doesn't doesn't cause you to be your whole self. Everything about them is is predetermined. You have no power, no autonomy in it. So I don't just coexist. I I, I challenge myself to engage, and especially with Black people, because this is y'all trying to give us back something y'all stole from us, right? That's like me. That's it's like that's like me having some snacks in the cabinet. And I'm like, child, where are my candy bars? And you being like, girl, here's a candy bar. And I'll be like, well, bitch, this is my candy bar because I labeled it and marked it, right? It's like, and, 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 it's, and so for me, it's important to be around and engage, especially in the Midwest, because they ask me questions, because they don't always agree, because they may still think the way to get justice for Breonna Taylor is for someone to be arrested. But I also get to have a conversation about what are other options of healing around that. I get to engage with my people and I get to stoke these, these conversations. And I know that was necessary for me. So I would challenge and say, it's not, we, we shouldn't even be trying to coexist as abolitionists, as folks who know better, we need to do better and we need to be open the foundational piece of abolition I hold on to when I don't have it strength for anything else is grace. How dare I want to envision my, my, my version of Xanadu to speak to the, to, the, to the white gays on the call and not give space for people to just show up as they are and understand that even in abolition, nobody agrees. 
even in abolition, no one agrees. And, and is, should that keep us from, from seeking the community that we know is gonna be essential for us to, to bring this kind of society to fruition? No, and, and, and those are the times that I think um, acceptance and those, type of, and those type of ideas from the dominant group um, are, are definitely a byproduct of supremacy because it's intentional to keep folks separated. Um, so we really, we not only need to come together, um, we, we, we should be at, at any cost. I live for you. <laughs> I just want to say that, Dominique, like I really live for you. Um, and small world, thanks for connecting that for me. Um, It's hard, and but I agree. I think, you know, it. I really love the piece about talking to Black folks about it. And I think where it starts to feel really hard, um, exhausting and like getting to the point of like, I hope is, is bleak is that I re I've gotten to the point where I feel really comfortable understanding that everyone won't be on the wagon in this in their lifetime like there's going to be a lot of folks who aren't with it and that has been our i'm a very love history that is our case for any big social movement i think when we're past those times or we lived after them or whatever we think that like everyone was gung-ho and it was like this harmonious shift towards something and it's never been that and so going back to kind of what i said earlier about like people maybe not folks might not, might not be able to tell you what abolition is, but they know what it feels like, right? They know moments. Um, and so I think for, for, for to answer the question is that how I do it is, by, is exactly by that grace piece. It is by, I think humans have this superpower to know when someone's being genuine. And so if I can engage with someone in a conversation and it feels genuine, I'll extend the the labor or the, you know, a good word to um, to end the conversation, right? But it also has come to a point where I've had to know when I have to go and when actually my energy needs to be going to other Black people and other Black, queer, and trans people um, to get us on the same page because I, I I really believe that we will be the ones who who achieve our liberation, you know, and whoever else wants to be like an accomplishment to that and like there to throw down is really great, but I don't know that I can always give that. I also think that there's a lot of pressure to know how to say the right thing or how to like describe in a really articulate and eloquent way why abolition is the way and I don't believe that is necessary I think like there's a lot of people that can talk about it and so in my work it's like how do I like get folks to like let's talk about the feeling of it the experience of it right like why I didn't feel good in our bodies as our teacher talked about earlier and how we hold that right and um and so I think it's really we uh, and I the first time I was ever exposed to this idea was through Black Visions Collective around principled struggle. This idea of like how we stay together in things that are really hard. And as Dominique said, there isn't like people, even in abolition communities and organizations don't agree. And so how do we also continue to like um, interrogate it and not be scared that, of, that, of that dissonance that exists? Cause that's nuance and this whole world and this whole life is full of multiple truths and, and nuance, right? And so I, I think a lot of it is that is like, how do we get comfortable with like 
knowing that we're always going to be like this and like the utopia is actually never going to exist. It's how we stay together and how we take care of one each one another. Um, so I'll leave it there. Yeah, I feel like for me, I try to, well, I had to come to the understanding too with a lot of stuff that I believed in that everybody was not about to agree with me or believe in what I believe in. And it is my worst move to try to force them. And like that it will never get what I want. And, but me practicing what I believe in is really the thing. So, you know, if you're close enough to watch, maybe you'll start, you'll choose to do different too. Um, so yeah, I, it's, yeah, it's just also one thing that's come up in organizing where um, I have been or like assume that other people are abolitionists or like don't want prisons to even to be more specific, just that like we're like mm, prisons are bad, we should not lock people up. Um, yeah, and then that's that's not the case and having to understand that like liberation just doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. Um, but I think for my personal relationships, people who I really love and value, and we might may not share that that belief around abolition. Um, I think like a, a good example that I have is with a friend who uh, they had a friend within their whatever friend group who um, just had 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 did something messed up to somebody and like the date in like dating somebody did not treat the person very kindly and it like came back to the friends um and basically this part like they all stopped talking to him and they were just like well we just can't believe you would ever cross somebody's boundaries in that way so like we're all done with you and then that person had came to me and she was like yeah well what do you think i should do because I mean I knew about it but I was just like damn that's fucked up and like being what y'all be saying that doesn't really make sense but that's y'all's choice that's y'all's friend and um yeah like she ended up just coming to me like what do you think I should do and I'm like well I of course I don't know the right thing to do but I think the first step is like well I asked like have you talked to him have you tried to reach out and just have a one-to-one -one conversation and she's like no I just, you know, group mind, group minded stuff. Like I'm following what the group says. This is how we all want to handle it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was just trying to encourage my my ideas, my beliefs through that. Like, like, well, maybe you should reach out for a conversation, depending on how that conversation goes. But da 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 da. In my, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't completely throw my friend away, but I would hold him at a at a you know particular distance. And 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 you know, yeah. So. I just try to do it in a relational way. And I definitely don't try to go reach people who are completely against or opposite of me. Um, it's just not worth our energy, um, but yeah. Artisha, don't you think that speaks to like, I don't think people talk about how, how hard it is to live in abolitionist values enough. Folks make it seem like it's plug and play, but like in those times you're like, you're. You, you tend to lean into the things that you've done, even if they haven't worked, or even if, even if you know they cause harm, because sometimes that's easiest. It, it I've, I say this about like relationships in like a sexual health space that people, when people break up with someone, it's not, it's a heartbreak piece, but what they really struggle with is that it's not as easy to make new dreams as people think it is. And if you've been tied to a person, an entity, 
in this space society, we've made dreams based on society. And we're asking everyone to dream, not only new individual dreams, to engage in helping create a collective new dream. And that is hard. It takes all sorts of spirit and access and privilege to lean into that. So also what, 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 what it was important that I heard from you is that we constantly need to lean into each other. We constantly need to check in. We constantly need to understand like, yo, especially for black folks where it's like, this is the one thing they told us we were gonna have. And you telling me this, this, this is faulty too, sis. You know what I'm saying? And so, and so, so that's going to happen. And and that goes, and then that goes to that space around whiteness. It's like, if y'all want to engage with black folks who are navigating abolition, grace needs to be first on your skill set. I don't care how many talking circles you can do. I don't care how many, you know, uh, how many books you've read. If you can't engage in grace, leave them people alone. Stop trying to be in relationship to people that you're not ready to be in relationship with. Because what it will do is just push them away from abolition. And it's going to be counterproductive to us creating the shared, like this shared community that we're talking about. So our teacher, thank you for like, because I, I forget that some days of, it's not easy. And I, you can't, we stop talking about it like it's easy. It's worthwhile. Therefore, it, is, it, it, it inherently isn't going to be easy. But we need to say that more, especially to young folks. Yeah, Absolutely. For adding that. I totally agree. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting because when I heard the question, um, it's like, you know, like, what about people who are not ready for that? And I'm just like, nobody's ready for that when they first learn about abolition. Like, and it's a romanticization to think that people are just like, oh, yeah, I'm an abolitionist now. You know, like, and I think there's always a rub. I think there's also this thing about like, there's this false sense of like purity that like abolitionists never struggle with like, with their values, which is also just not true, right? It's just like, yeah, when like Tory Lane shot fucking Megan the Salad in the foot, I was like, fuck that dude. You know, I don't believe in prisons, but also fuck that dude, right? And so like, that is like a thing that I, you know, you have to wrestle with to be like, okay, like I'm allowed to have my feelings. It's about like how I react to my feelings, right? And I think we live in a society that tells us like no feelings, they're not useful, anger isn't useful. And it's like nothing your body naturally does is a waste of time, right? So anything your body tells you is important information. It's about how you react to it that is that you have to be responsible for. Um, so I think there's always a rub. There's there's no such thing as abolitionist, abolitionist purity. It's literally a practice. Um, and so it's something that you have to continue to do. Um, I also really love um, what people lifted around grace. I also say that to other Black people. Like, <laughs> we can sometimes be, you know, the eat your own kind of thing, right? And so, like, I think that's something that I personally always am trying to practice, especially with other Black folks. Um, is grace. Um, I also think that like comfort is something that we have to be really mindful of because I think that people don't, they're scared of abolition because it's uncomfortable. And I think there are ways that we have to recognize that we can, we can stand firmly in our ideals, even if it makes somebody else uncomfortable. 
comfortable and that's not bad. And that conflict is also not bad, that that can be very generative. Um, and it tells us that something needs to change. And if we're committed to transformation, then, we're, then we have to be okay with navigating conflict. And if we're conflict avoidant, that means that we're actually not living up to that ideal. Um, Jane Fonda, who I fucking love, said she like was on this interview with The View and Joy Behard, I think that's her name. She said, you know, they keep talking about defunding the police, but that's just so abrasive. It's so, why can't we call it something else? And Jane Fonda was like, well, I think as white folks, we should actually take our cue from the movement for black lives. And if that's what they want to do, then that's what we're going to do. Right. And I think that was so powerful to see like an older white woman, like say, actually, we just have to sit back and listen. And like, I understand that it makes us uncomfortable, but like, these are the folks that we're saying we're committed to supporting through. Um, and so that whole thing about like, you know, like, should we, should we be making it softer? Should we be making it more approachable? And I think accessible and comfort are not the same. And I think we should look to the disability justice movement and like disabled black and brown queer and trans people to talk about the like comfort versus accessibility. Um, and I think a lot of disabled folks will tell us that comfort and accessibility aren't necessarily the same thing. Um, and so I think we have to really interrogate that. So all that to say, I do think that the grace part is huge. And what Justin said also about boundaries, right, is like, I love a boundary. And I am willing to be curious um, with anybody who wants to know more. But like, you also have to discern. I mean, I'm in my mid 30s. So at this point, I'm just kind of like, I can tell when someone's actually trying to engage because they want to know more and because they just want to prove a point. And I'm too old for that shit. So I'm too tired to be like, I'm not going to argue with you because you actually don't want to move. You just want to like play devil's advocate or whatever, as opposed to someone who's genuinely curious, right? And I think people get caught up on language and it's just like, okay, like, what do you think abolition means, right? Like when people hear, they're like, I see things burning. And it's like, okay, but let me tell you what abolition means to me, right? Um, and I, I see things coming from the ashes, right? So there, it's a different vantage point. I also waited to answer this question last because I'm not a Midwesterner. I'm like an East Coaster through and through. And I moved here to go to graduate school and I learned so much about, I know there's like shade about like coastal queers versus like Midwest queers. But I do think that like my perspective of not growing up here gave me a lot of information about how context matters right and so like people the way that they're raised the way that they build community matters to how they can even engage this work right so i've had to learn like the way that i might talk about this back on the east coast like has different implications hits different in the midwest and so i have to be willing to be adaptable around that and i think vice versa i think a lot of in my experience a lot of people in the midwest who are from the midwest never leave the midwest so i think that um that also gives a particular perspective, right? And so I think for me, I personally really appreciate having multiple perspectives because it allows me to like nuance the work in a different way. And so I've learned a lot from the Midwest about how to approach um, the work and how to engage people and like how people build community in a different way. And those are the girls you need to send 
a cash app request. You ask me more than one question, you got to pay me, beloved. Now you wanna argue and you done booked me to argue with me? Girl, I don't yuck people's yum, honey. Like if that's if 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 that's your if that's your tea, then you can you can you can get it, beloved. But but very much so, like those are that's my labor, and you're not going to get it at no cost. And also the audacity for me to have to prove to you the validity of not only my identity, but my lived experience and my values. Girl, fuck you. These are college students, right? Is that what's happening? Y'all, I'm getting <laughs> it's late. <laughs> I had two chips. So I hope y'all have me back. And <laughs> just my first Embotech, when I tell you that I caught two, that I had to rent a car to get to Kansas City, I was broke as hell. I was catering and selling fruit plates out of my kitchen in undergrad, selling CDs out my trunk. And they accepted me for a session. And it was in Kansas City that year. It had to be like 24. 14, somewhere around there. And so um, also just it hit me like it was a it was a full circle moment. So yeah. I appreciate that my mumble tech co-chairing was your first mumble tech. That makes me it makes me happy that six years later <laughs> we're we're um sharing space again. Um I technically had another another question lined up from from what I sent y'all, but we've got a few questions that I'm I'm checking the ticker tape here um, to my to my left um, that I think uh, have already been touched on that I think would be good to to um, bring up. And one of them that caught my eye because folks um, and I'll try to get to as many of these and maybe consolidate some as we're going. Um, but one that caught my eye right is just this the the kind of references we've made to youth so far. Um, and the question specifically is, what do you think the role that young people, which some of us are, I think, believe, like are still like definitely in that category of young people, but maybe even younger, you know, folks, right, um, have on both the present and the future of both the abolitionist movement um, and the fight for equality as this question's written. So any immediate takers on, on thinking about that and our young folk? Yeah, I think young people have everything, especially I think that 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 question said Gen Z, which I really don't I think it I feel like it's my generation. I don't really know. But what like when I read that question, what it reminded me of was um, we had a Halloween party for all the kids in my family uh, this year. Um, and my little cousin Ramon was sitting with my uh, little brother Noah like they were sitting on the stairs or something. My little brother had um, like his lock screen on his phone is some, was somebody who was like presenting masculine, but twerking. And it's like a moving, like, you know, moving live picture. And so my little cousin who's like eight just said some super random homophobic shit and was just like, that's, you know, saying something fucked up. And I was in the kitchen just kind of you know, listening to them handling, handle it, because my older sibling was also there and his other friend, um, and they all know, they all with it, you know, with the with the shit. So I'm like, mm, I'm gonna give them space to like handle this situation. And so, I mean, ultimately they didn't really handle it. It was very awkward. I had to come over and be like, just make it very clear how it wasn't acceptable. But then my little sibling, Noah goes, he's 11. He's like, and also you can't use somebody's sexual sexuality as an insult anyways. And I was just like, 
period like that's all that needed to be said like ultimately like I'm not gonna cut the kids so just you know um I'm gonna be more gracious with a child and try to leave some room but yeah my little brother just wasn't playing he like you know what it doesn't like you hurt my feelings and also like it doesn't really need to hurt because that's not an insult. You saying that um, I'm gay because I have something on my phone that is somebody who you think is is a man twerking. So, so yeah, um, that yeah, that situation just made me very very proud because never at 11 years old would I ever fix my lips to say something like that. Like I would have allowed that type of insult to I would have allowed it to be an insult um, and yeah that just it just deeply stuck out to me and I see with my siblings because um they're well one is 11 the other one is 15 and it's just like the ways that they choose to express themselves and not put labels on themselves at the same time and like you know my dad is from Gambia and he's a Muslim black man and just like really push back on him and like really stand stand in there who they are and what they choose to be and I feel like you know TikTok is low-key like a terrible thing but it's also a great thing because I didn't I wasn't the person always educating my siblings on everything mostly they was just seeing me live my life and also me always affirming them but I do believe they have found a lot of study and education in apps like that like TikTok and being on the internet and being able to pick and choose who they want to listen to who they want to follow and you know there's like good and there's bad but i think that young people right now have an amount of access that we as humanity humans and connection that we've never had before um and that that too can be like the catalyst for continuing change and um yeah like astrologically or whatever speaking to i've just heard that the way the generation is set up with the planet and saturn and the thing like we're here to be expressive we're here to be different and not you know keep it pushing and not be like what we've seen before so um yeah always trusting young people and even though also today my birthday even though I'm 23 today like still young people people way younger than me continue to teach me um and teach me about myself and what it really means to believe in my values so I felt the Scorpio spirit on you I don't know what it was but some came through beloved I think also these young people are getting presentation that my generation didn't have. Um, I graduated high school in the year 2000. Um, Will and Grace didn't come on till what, like 98. I remember like whenever Will and Grace came on was like the first time I remember seeing like gay people consistently. And during this pandemic, I've like, it's a terrible abolitionist thing to do, but Olivia Benson is a bad bitch. And so I've been watching Law and Order SVU, like from the rooter to the tutor. And thinking back that the only representation of trans people were these sexualized, like these, these, these things, or I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, Sally, Jesse, Raphael and things like that. That was what I saw. So I think not only is, are these young people like empowered and they have it, they get to see it. And, and, and my, 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 my sister, my younger sister has three boys. They're 15, 14, and 13. And I, I, this social transition piece for me reactivated in March of this year. I picked them up on Saturday, took them to the mall, and I went to like explain pronouns. And they were like, oh, oh auntie, we already know. I'm like, what do you mean you already know? 
because I know your daddy ain't shit. So who taught you? You know what I'm saying? And they were like, oh, when mom talked to us and she showed us an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race and she told us about it and 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 now they're on my Instagram and they're saying, you know, they're commenting on pictures and they're engaging and it's not and it's so normalized that it kind of shocked me. I was prepared for a big conversation with these three boys about, you know, all the things. And so it's not only just young people, it's it's black young folks that don't have as much access as they should have that are getting it. So therefore, when it's an 80 year old white woman that has the most access and you can't understand pronouns for me, I'm not receiving it beloved. I'm not receiving it. I'm not receiving it at all whatsoever. These babies, they see it. They see their friends, they get attraction. They're talking about it. Us adults are messing it up. Us adults are coming in the room saying, oh, you shouldn't do that. Um, but these, these babies, honey, they're, they're a blessing. Oh, I'm gonna go, Key. Thank you, Key. Yes, to all of that, I live for y'all. I I really deeply agree that like we stifle and we put restrictions on youth, right? To be like, oh well, they can't understand, or but it's really like all the things that we place on them, right? Um, Charlene Carruthers, um, author of Unapologetic, a Black Queer Feminist Mandate. Uh, for radical movements. If you haven't read it, please do, has really influenced me. And she talks about this like black radical tradition and how, and specifically in black queer feminism that what it actually is, is being able to look at our past and acknowledge the work of our ancestors, whether we agreed with it or not, but seeing the missteps in it, holding those really closely and then also like blazing a trail for our experiences while holding it all together. It's a real rough and dirty version, okay? And so I think it, it really illustrates for me when I think about youth right now. And like I recently have been thinking a lot about the work will not be done in my lifetime. And it's a really hard reality to like grapple with but it doesn't need to be done in my lifetime. It, it's about how we continue to put people on our shoulders, right? Is that the work that we're doing, all of us are doing right now is because folks like died for it, right? And folks resisted for it and folks were incarcerated for it. And so I think that the, the for me, the role is to push forward and to break down the messages, the barriers, the systems, all the things that say actually that you're not, you shouldn't do it or it's not respectful to do it or it's not, you know, whatever the scenario is. And so, to get some more questions, I'm gonna stop there, but that's all I wanted to add. Yes, I um, I really resonate with everything that people said, especially like the adults ruining the things. Like I used to run a, a youth group for trans young people in Philadelphia and they would always say, it's like, I'm actually not freaking out about my identity. It's the, all the adults in my life who are freaking out about my identity. Um, and so I think that comes with like abolition, those things too. I have a um, I have a 15 year old sibling who um, we're 19 years apart, and that is also the space between me and my mom. So like my mom and I are 19 years apart. So I I could be their parent literally. I'm also like, what the hell would I do with a 15 year old right now? I could barely keep myself fed and shit. But um, they're also queer and they're also trans, and it's been such a like humbling experience to just like witness their growth um and also just like humbling to be like I'm old now and like 
the way that I think about things is also shifting, right? Like, you know, they were like telling me about something and I was just like, baby, that's not how that works, right? But then I was like, wait a minute, actually like, this is my, like, I also say that like, I have a joke that like my generation, like millennials, older millennials, like it's our fault um, because we were just like, people are trans, get over it. And now the kids are so casual about it that I'm just like surprised. I'm like taking it out. And I was just like, oh, but we, we actually did this. Like we, we created this thing. Um, so yeah, I think that there's something to be said about um, like uh, also just like imagination. Like I, I recently did an abolition panel where a friend of mine brought their eight-year-old to it. And the eight-year-old said, what, what is my role in abolition? <laughs> and, um, and I was just like, oh, imagine it. Like, I remember this kid makes me play and makes me think about like things that aren't in front of me and be like, don't you want to play with this thing? And, and I sometimes get frustrated because it's like, I have like real adult problems. And then I'm just like, oh, but that's actually the thing that they're asking me to tap into is like imagining something that I can't see right in front of me, imagining something um, like Justin said that like, I may not live to see the fruits of my labor, but like, but like in my imagination, it's crystal clear. So I think that is something. Um, and I just also want to uplift that like, I personally have learned a lot from Artisha. And I think that like, as a person who's like a yeah. younger person in my life, like I've learned so much um, from Artisha about just like how you show up in the world, like how you um, are just like, authentically yourself. And I just think that that's something that like, if I would have like grappled with when I was younger, I think I would have like saved myself a lot of heartbreak. And that doesn't mean that like things aren't hard or whatever, but um, I just like wanted to uplift that in this moment is that like, I feel really gracious that I get to be with somebody that I've also really learned. I'm sorry, like, I didn't mean to make you, make you feel uncomfortable, but I, I do think that this is like something about <laughs> They're a crier, I knew that, I knew that. But I do think that's something about like, um, for me, like I have older trans people in my life who have like shown me things and and have had like intergenerational mentorship. And I feel that from um, being in relation to Artisha. And I think that's been a beautiful like example of the work too, um, because we didn't, you know, when Artisha first met me it was definitely like, who the fuck are you? You know, like, and rightfully so. And I think it it, it taught me a lot about being able to like um, meet somebody where they're at and also like humble myself to also be like, this person is also my teacher. Like I, I'm teaching things that they're also teaching me. Um, and I think that's so, so important, particularly to an abolitionist movement because none of us have the right answer, right? But like all, all of us are doing the best that we can and the more that we're in relation to each other and building those relationships with integrity, that's how we get forward. So I just wanted to name that. Yo, this has been an absolute like dream, a trans abolitionist dream, in fact, right? And in the very short time we have, because I know some folks have a hard stop and I we might just be right up against that for for some folks anyway, is just in in whatever snippet fashion you'd like it really we had other questions i might send them along to y'all just so that you know what other folks were interested in just if for um for your reference the institute for our audience are gonna do some some work to comb through and find all of the referenced cited items resources books readings etc and try to send that out to folks um shortly after um this space as well um but just for y'all uh kind of final thoughts to wrap us, right? Like what 
what for you is or what do you need or what what um you know what uh what does it look like what, what right what is the trans abolitionist vision for you um and and what does that mean and how do we get there just what what is it what is your your version your read on the trans abolitionist vision um to to close us out for for the evening y'all i have a six o'clock panel so i gotta go in three minutes um well i need to be on their thing in three minutes um the dream is that more of us experience what thriving is like than more of us talking about we know how to survive. So many of us connect and build family and build community community based on the fact that we've all suffered. What it looks like is that we build community and we come together based on the fact that we all can talk about our most favorite trip, our most favorite trips, and the most and the most joy we've ever had. That joy is what brings us together, what builds community. And not and not what we've been able to survive. There's something past resilience, and people don't talk about that enough. And thriving should be the goal. And and so when we meet there, um, and and I believe it's possible um, that it will be our litmus test. I love you all. Please connect with me on social media so so much. I'm in Chicago. I'm all up and through the Midwest. We're gonna have real real shenanigans. Real real shenanigans, honey. Postmates deliver Hennessy out there. So I see y'all in a couple of weeks. And yes, God. I love that. I think I resonate with that of like the thriving piece, right? Um, unfortunately, so much, so many of us have bonded through trauma. Um, and I, I, I also hold that close to my heart of like wanting us to know what it feels like to thrive, not just here, but like in our bodies. Um, and we have a long way to get there. Um, but I know that when I'm in space with other Black, queer, and trans people, that's when I feel the most alive. Um, and I want, I, that is my wish for everybody, to feel that, that sense of being alive and expansive um, and that I could, I could really do anything with my people behind me. Um, and I think that that's something I try to ground into every day, that even if I can't see that, that I can feel that. and. Um, as long as I can call that up in my body, I know that it'll make the space in the world for me to do that. So um, that's what I really hope for all of us. Um, for me, I guess to put it simply, I don't know if anybody have has watched uh, Lovecraft Country yet, but yeah, there's a scene where um, well, yeah, mm, just gonna keep it short. There's a scene where Montrose, who is the dad of Atticus, is um, um, he's like at a party or at the club, but it's definitely like a queer club. Like it's not just the regular degular. And he's like super uncomfortable at first um, and uncomfortable with himself and not like what he's seen at all, but just uncomfortable with the fact that like he likes this space and it's like you got to watch it I just recommend watching this but um he just gets to a point where he breaks free like in his body and starts dancing and really letting the music take him and like I felt his joy and even though he's acting this joy like to me yeah that's a that's a good moment a sun-kissed moment of like that's what I want all of us to be able to have freedom within our bodies I really, I, that's everything. And the only thing I would say is that we keep us safe, right? Is that like, 
community is far more than who you're in proximity with. It's actually how you care for one another. And so I'd say believe in that, pour into that, do it for people that don't live in your household, people at the grocery store, people in church, people, homeless folks and houseless folks that you drive past. All, that is, is how we will survive. It will not be from folks who will never live, know what it feels like to make $30,000 a year, you know? So pour into your folks, yeah, and, and learn. And it has to be an active choice, right? That's something that inside of you, that's like, I, I see the need. I've been so inspired by participating in this, right? But now I got to do something. I have to act, right? If not, I'm in my complacency, in my complacency, whatever, you know what I'm saying. That's it. Thank you. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. This podcast is made possible by the labor and commitments of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, and Nick for all of your support with editing, promotion, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>